Just pray with me for a minute. God, we sing it because it's really true. I pray this morning would be a morning where we gaze into your completely worthy, completely satisfying goodness, and that we would see that you are better than the things that we spent our week chasing. Correct our course this morning, God. Thank you for saving the students. Thank you for being with us. We love you, Jesus, and we give this morning as an offering to you. I pray that it would be with a pure heart that you'd receive it in your name. Amen. Have a seat. My name is DJ. I'm the youth pastor here. And uh, can we just thank the students for leading us in worship so well? I'll correct their egos for that later. That's my job, not yours. So uh, it's a morning to celebrate the camps that we took our students to, Hume Lake and, and Forest Home. And uh, instead of wasting your time recapping uh, what we did day by day at the camp, I thought maybe I would just take the morning with the Bible in front of me and teach you uh, some things that God put on my heart throughout the week uh, that I learned as someone who just went to camp. I happened to be the pastor that went, but uh, as I sat in the rows, I heard the messages, I sang the songs, and God worked on my heart, and I just want to share some of that with you. Uh, it was my first time ever at Hume Lake, and uh, for, you know, uh, from Minnesota, I had ne- like, they don't have mountains in Minnesota. I, if you don't know a lot about the United States, like the highest point of elevation where I grew up was these mounds of dirt that they were saving for some construction project. <laughs> they still stand to, Mount Maple Grove still stands to this day, and so that's kind of what we would call a mountain in Minnesota. Uh, Hume Lake is actually like on a mountain, like a, like a, like a mountain, mount, like the really high ones. And we uh, got there via bus, which I don't know when the bus was invented, but I know what it was not invented for. The bus was not invented to bring 60 people up a mountain. It wasn't. And so I'm sitting, like our, our driver uh, was trying to, and I believe successfully, set the record for how fast you can get a group of students to Hume Lake. Because we hit some turns on that mountain, I think two wheels on the ground as we went like up the side of it, like kids are all running to look over the side. I'm like pressed against the other side, <laughs> hoping I'm heavy enough to hold it down. He's ripping into turnout so that cars can pass us. And it's like kind of a gamble like, oh, is he gonna stop? Is he not? Nope, oh, yeah, he's gonna, right? Cars are zipping by us, coming toward us. He's like, they'll move. Like, where, bro? The only option is off the mountain if they move. Like, I have to sleep tonight watching you drive like this. So just watching him get to the, like, as close to the edge as possible uh, truly changed my life. But we all made it. This would have been a way different service if 60 of us had died. So we get to celebrate this morning. Uh, We get there, and there's a 1,000 kids at the camp. And anywhere uh, a 1,000 teenagers gather, uh, just fill in the blank in your, like, I don't even need to say it. A 1,000 teenagers all in the same spot, uh, amped up on collective social pressure. And we get to day one of some of the students' favorite part of the week, which is the rec games. And uh, these are the unspiritual kids who don't like chapel. They love the rec. I'm just kidding. They love the So... They, you saw it in the video a little bit. They divided us into two um, like macro teams, the black team and the red team, the rockers and the rollers, because uh, that was kind of the theme for the week. And the first day of rec, again, my first 
human experience. We're standing innocently in front of the chapel waiting for the first rec instruction day. And I kind of, I'm sitting there talking with my students and I just kind of feel this like rumbling in the earth. And I see like over the crest of this hill, a thousand kids encroaching upon my personal space, <laughs> chanting, yelling, screaming. They, they have known what rec team they're on for 40 minutes, and suddenly it is the most important part of their identity because they are chanting back and forth at each other, rockers, rollers, rockers, rollers, just yelling. A kid, we had to bandage a kid up because he got injured just trying to enter the chapel on the first day of wreck. And I, like, if you've ever seen the movie Gladiator, I felt like Maximus, just like as he was about to walk into the Coliseum for the first time, like people chanting and it was a viral teenagers just ready to rip each other apart, all in the name of Jesus and fun. So <laughs> we had uh, two of our of our sweet, brilliant students on the red team join us on the, on the roller side, on the, on the black team side, while the chaos was ensuing. And uh, not a good move, let me tell you why. Because again, the team is the identity now. And you kinda, it's like you forget who you are when you put the black shirt on, suddenly I just hate everyone wearing red. I hate them. I don't care what church they're from, I don't care what God they serve. I hate them. And so we've got two kids wearing red t-shirts in this black sea of chaos. And it starts to get like a little bit like, like it, it was funny at first, but now it's like actually serious. Like you have to leave. Like, and they kind of get guided like groceries on a conveyor belt, like just out of the black sea, uh, pushed out because it was really, really clear and obvious. They did not belong where they were. Red in a sea of black, they did not belong. And in reflection, I've thought, first of all, that was insane. And second, when you walk in to a church on Sunday morning, it's not really clear who belongs to the family of God and who doesn't. Our reaction isn't to push out anyone that doesn't belong because this is a place where everyone should come hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I think sometimes what can happen is we become so rehearsed at doing all the right steps and all the right moves and we sing all the right songs and say all the right amens at all the right times that you might be wearing the red shirt, but just when you step into the doors of the church, you put on the black one just so that you fit in and no one can tell. Who are you really with? You don't know. We're professional fakers of who we really are when we walk through these doors and it's something that just plagues churches all over the place. And what we'll do then, because that's how we feel like we have to live here, we'll kind of be like what the bus driver was, and we'll just get to the, like, as close to the edge as possible of living the Christian life. Like, what's the bare minimum that I can kind of have Jesus in my life and still call myself a Christian? I want to be as close to the edge as possible. I want to be as much like the world as possible. The problem with that is, unlike our very skilled and frightening bus driver, we don't have the ability to balance that for our entire life, and what happens is we fall off the edge, and it's usually ugly. The Christian life was not meant to balance on the edge. It was meant to dive into the deep end and live your life for Christ, in Christ, because of Christ, and that's what I want to teach you about this morning from Galatians chapter 2. If you'll open your Bibles, please, to Galatians chapter 2, verse 15. We're going to cover this section. Uh, the theme verse from Hume came from Galatians 2.20. I just want to teach you about the section that it's kind of mired in, and then I'm going to tell you about why I think that this presents a vision for us as a church to move forward with, all right? 
So Galatians 2.20, starting in verse 15, this is Paul uh, talking to a church and kind of talking about a situation that he was having with Peter. I'll explain it after I read it. Here it goes, 2.15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. I want you to listen really carefully to the words presented in this chapter because I think it's a paragraph that just so corrects the church culture that we've created where you have to look a certain way, be a certain way, learn the moves just to fit in, but church isn't real and it's not about Jesus, it's about us. I think that if we'll listen, we'll see ourselves in this passage. So, Paul is correcting something that Peter was doing. Peter was kind of like, at this point, kind of like the head of the disciples of Jesus. Um, He preached the first sermon in Acts chapter 2 at at Pentecost, and 3,000 people were saved. He was really the guy kind of driving the original effort to spread the gospel the way that Jesus asked for it to be spread. Paul joined in Acts chapter 9 when he met Jesus and was given a vision that he would bring the gospel to people who weren't born as Jews. That wasn't how it always was, but Paul was given the task, Peter will reach the Jews, Paul, you reach the Gentiles, and we'll become one church together. Now, Paul found out something that Peter was doing was acting one way around Jewish Christians and acting a different way around Gentile Christians, Christians who had not been born as Jews. And he, he was really upset with that because he said, it's supposed to look different than that, Peter. You're not supposed to look one way here and another way there. And I think just that is kind of its own message for us. Like if you see yourself acting one way with this group, one way with this group, one way in this place, and then when you come into church, it's all different. Now I got to put on my church person costume. Uh, then Paul has some corrective words for us because he was dead serious about it with Peter. I think he'd be just as serious with us. And, and we, we have to read the passage through that lens. That's the situation that's going on. So he says, listen, Peter, we ourselves, in verse 15, are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. The first time I read this verse, I thought, Paul, that was kind of racist, to be honest. Like, it was a little bit religious elite. It's not something that I would really be used to hearing you say, what do you mean we're Jews? We're not like those Gentile sinners. I thought we were all sinners. Didn't you say that like 412 times in other places in the New Testament? This is what you have to understand, to understand this whole passage. What he means when he says sinners is he's kind of talking in slang. Not, not actual, we're all sinners. Can just, if you don't believe that, you're not going to enjoy or learn from this message. We're all so far apart from God that he had to die to fix it, all right? That's kind of the, the foundation of what we're talking about here. When Paul says we're not Gentile sinners, he just means, listen, we grew up as Jews. We grew up doing all of the ceremonial stuff. We avoided the right foods. We ate the right foods. We washed our hands at the right time. We fought, we obeyed the law for our entire lives because that's how we were raised. But listen, 
We know, verse 16, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying to Peter, listen, we grew up like this. This is what we learned. This is the religion that we were born into. And yet we now know because we met Jesus that that's not how we're saved. When I say saved, I mean that's not how we know for sure that we will spend eternity in heaven with Jesus instead of in hell apart from him. We... It's not what we do. We are justified, which just means that we are given the righteousness of God only by faith that is given to us in a way that we do not deserve. We are not uh, saved by the works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So in 17, he says, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? And again, to understand this verse, you have to understand the way that he's using the word sinners. He's, he's talking in slang. He's saying, listen, if by, if by following God through faith and not by works of the law, then it makes us look like sinners, like what Jews would call sinners, people who don't care about the ceremonies, they don't care about the laws, they don't care about the feasts, they, they're just following Jesus. If we look like sinners, great, basically, Great, because it's not a sinner to live like that. That is not what it means to be a sinner. The Jews had redefined in their own culture what it meant to be a sinner and to be faithful to God. And the definition that they placed on it was follow all these rules, reach all these statutes, do all these things, and then God will love you. Paul's saying it's not that. Paul is reminding Peter, who is living differently than this, he was reminding him of the whole point of the law, of the Ten Commandments, of the law in the Old Testament. The whole point in the first place wasn't just to say, if you obey all these rules, then God will love you. That was never the point of the law in the Old Testament. The whole point was to use it as a picture of these measuring sticks that showed the immeasurable distance between me and God. I am nothing like him apart from my creation in his image. He is holy. I am not. He is perfect. I am not. I am not like God. And the greatest picture of that is if I put my life next to his law, all of the discrepancies demonstrate that it is impossible for me to perfectly follow him the way that only his son could. That's the point of the law. What the Jews had done was they took all those measuring sticks that were showing the distance and they propped them up on their head and they tried to turn them into a ladder that we would use to climb into the gates of heaven by earning God's favor. They said, if you do this, if you do this, if you follow this, if you talk like this, if you watch VeggieTales as a kid, if your parents always brought you to church every week, if you do all of these things, then God will love you. And only then. Paul's saying no. He's saying our God is better than that. He has a better design. He says, listen, Peter, I know you know this, but I'm just trying to remind you. Christ isn't a servant of sin because if I rebuild what I tore down, which is the law, then I'm wrong, not him. He says in 19, for through the law, I died to the law. So he's saying, uh, when, I, when I saw the law, when I saw the distance between me and God, then it forced me to realize that I am dead. It, it was not my cue to start performing so that he would love me, but it was my cue to see who I really am in my sin. I am dead. I'm not alive. And I need the life of Christ to make me alive. So he says, I died to the law through the law so that I might live to God. He says, the entire purpose of my life is this in verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live 
but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. He's saying, Peter, if you look at the offering that you brought to God in your salvation, then all you should see is your sin. That's about all you had to contribute. And the weight and the size of your sin was so significant that it took the cross to pay the price for it. But what the Jews were doing is they were like, all right, I see you, but I'll raise you one. I agree with justification by faith alone, but what if we also, just in case, just in case, what if we also did all of the old things that the law told us to do just to be sure? Paul says, no. That is dead. That's been crucified. One of my favorite illustrations that I heard at Hume from one of the speakers, he, he talks about a girl um, who really wanted an iPad, all right? And, and say that an iPad is $400. I have no idea how much an iPad actually costs, probably more because it's an Apple product. But she uh, makes an agreement with her dad, and, and her dad says, I, I don't have all the money for it, but whatever you raise, I'll, I'll pay the rest. And so the girl kind of sets her heart to work for an entire year. Uh, she rakes leaves. She, she doesn't live here, so she shovels snow. She takes out the trash. She does the dishes. She walks the dog. She cleans her sibling's room because she wants the iPad so bad. It's all she wants that she just does everything she can. And they put all the money that she earns from it in this piggy bank. And when a year passes, she's really excited. She gets in the car with her dad and they go to the Apple store and they put the piggy bank on the table and they smash it open and she pushes all of these coins, quarters, nickels, the half dollar that her grandma gave her toward the cashier and the cashier counts it all off and she says, all right, so there's $34. How are you going to pay for the rest of it? And we see Christianity sometimes as then the father kind of gratefully, like, hey, thank you for the $34. I'll pay the rest. And he, whatever the difference is between 434, I can't do it in my head, but he, he pays that. That is not the God of the Bible. And that is not the condition of our souls. The condition of our souls does not want a $400 iPad. The condition of our souls owes a $400 trillion debt to Apple itself. We can't pay it. We can't even make a dent in it. All we have is the debt. And our Father, looking at us in love, says, I can pay that. I can pay it for you, and I can pay it for you, and I can pay it for you, and you owe me nothing for it because there's nothing you could give me. Sometimes I think that we think that God should be grateful to us for becoming Christians. <laughs> what a crazy thought that our offering is anything to the God that created the offering we give. He steps in and he says, I'll, I'll pay that whole 400 trillion for you. Not only that, but I'll have enough left over to give you life. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I'm still alive, but it's not my life anymore. It's not my life anymore. The compelling message of Christianity is a blow to the ego that you cannot bring anywhere close to enough, and so you shouldn't even try. 
When, I feel like when we bring our $34, and uh, I mean, just imagine like bringing your $34 for the, for the $400 trillion debt and laying it at the foot of the cross and saying, hey, Jesus, you're welcome, as he takes a whip to the back for you. It's insanity that we live like this and that we think like this. And the reason that our self-righteousness is such an affront to God is because of the price of the cross. For someone that has been in church for their whole lives and has heard the message of the cross to say, all right, God, I hear you and I'll raise you my effort too. It's like we've looked at the suffering that Jesus underwent on the cross and we said, man, I sure hope that's enough. But just in case, here's my $34 too. The message that Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount uh, probably just plagues my heart as a youth pastor and as a pastor in general. When Jesus said, many will come to me and say, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast demons out in your name. And Jesus looks at them and he says, but I never knew you. Turn away from me. I never knew you. Who do you think is going to be standing before Jesus saying those things? It's not going to be the people that lived in open rebellion to him their whole lives. They're just going to see him and they're going to despair and they're going to go the other way. But it's the people that spent every week in church and joined the worship team and knew all the answers and knew all the verses. But their hearts were far from God the whole time. They loved what they got from being in church, but they never loved the one who established the church. They loved the friendships that they made and the memories that they had, but they never were thankful to Jesus for the cross. You can live your whole life in open rebellion against him, but self-righteousness leaves you just as far from God because it is a front to the sacrifice that he paid on the cross for you. When you say, let me bring my peace too, you're saying the cross wasn't enough. And then you are doing what verse 21 says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. When I try to bring my own salvation to the table, then I'm saying, Jesus, you didn't have to die the way you did. I could have handled it. We can't live like this. We don't have to live like this. The reason that the gospel of Christianity is so glorious is because we don't have to live like this. The price that you are trying to pay by being a good person has already been paid. The wrath that you are trying to avoid has already been poured out on Jesus. And we'll confess that and we'll believe that and we'll be baptized into that. And then we'll turn around and we'll say, I better do my part too. You must, but it's not to earn his favor. It's out of gratefulness for what he paid. That's the response of obedience in the Christian life is, God, thank you. I can't express the gratitude that I have for what you did for me on the cross. Now my life is yours. And that's what Paul says, that he's been crucified with Christ. It's no longer he who lives, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. This is the Christian life played out and exercised in the life of a Christian is, I'm dead uh, the way that I was, but now I'm alive and I'm more alive than I've ever been because when Jesus came, he promised that we would have life and we would have it abundantly. How can he say that? Also telling us to die. The reason that Jesus can say, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly is because it's his life that he's giving us. So we we get saved and we're grateful and then we say, all right, Jesus, let me live the life that you want me to live. Let me live life the way that you lived your life. And you do that just by, what did Jesus do? He went out of his way to reach people with the message that God came to earth because he loved us and he was going to die and be resurrected to defeat our sins so that we might have life abundantly. 
I tell my students all the time, if you think church is just coming and listening to a sermon and singing songs and going home, then you are going to be bored out of your mind in Christianity. You're going to leave it and I won't blame you because that's not all this is. Not only did he have the $400 trillion to pay our debt at the cross, but he had so much left over that he said, now I pour my life out onto you. Go live for me. The life I live, I live for Christ. I live his life. I live his mission. And we, the church, are meant to live it together. That's the whole point of what we're doing here. When we get together on Sunday, it's so that we can kind of look at the glorious face of the God that we were supposed to worship all week and turn back to him and get together and go back out and make a difference for his name in Huntington Beach or wherever you live, wherever you work. The life I live, I live for Christ. What would that look like? If 600 people that sit in these chairs every Sunday left the doors eager to live their lives for Christ, I want to share his message. I want to be on his mission. I want to do what he told me to do. I want to be faithful so that when I stand before him, I don't hear, I never knew you. I hear, well done, good and faithful servant. It's the entire desire and cry of my heart to hear those words from my Savior when I die. Well done, good and faithful servant. I can't imagine standing before him and saying, did I do enough? Did I do well enough? The only answer could be no. And so I'm kind of possessed with this vision for us as a youth group and for us as a church to stare for so long into the glory of God that we're just astonished at what we see and we have to go tell people about it. The person that you work next to every day for the last 17 years might not show up to work tomorrow. Do they know Jesus? Have you told them? Do they know they work next to someone whose life has been bought with an eternal price? Do they know? Your family? What do you talk about when you're together? You're sitting around the table and what's the main topic? Do you, do you share with your kids the glorious message that you've been saved by? Kids, if your parents aren't Christians, are you sharing the message that you've been saved by? The only thing that matters is that from our mouths that have been bought with a price would come the message that we do not deserve this and yet we've been given it. He loves us. I want to see it. We wouldn't retreat for a week uh, to Hume Lake and then come back and just pat ourselves in the back at how spiritual we are. Uh, that's why a Hume High would wear off is because we're just so proud of ourselves for being spiritual for a week. We want to come back and go out. We have to come back and go out. The price that he paid is compelling enough for us to tell other people about it. You're free from the weight of performing here. You're free to live the life that Christ bought for you because he loves you. I want to see it. Let's see what happens to Huntington Beach, 600 miles proclaiming the glories of God. Let's see what happens to the public schools of Huntington Beach if 60 students go in proclaiming the glories of God. Let's see seats filled, hearts changed, lives changed, if we will go out proclaiming the glories of God that we sing about week after week after week. Who is he putting in front of you to bring his message? He loves you and he loves them. We have to go, church. 
We have to go. Let me pray. God, this is what I'm asking you is that you would hold me and everyone here to the standard that your word has set for us, that we would live our lives for you in a way that is demonstrating that we understand to the smallest extent that we can the price that you paid for us on the cross and that we would go tell people about it as a result. Thank you for covering our sin in a way that we could not. Let us act out of gratitude now and go tell the world you love us. Thank you, Jesus. In your name, amen.